0: So a movie that I enjoy quite a bit, and hopefully several of you have seen, The Princess Bride has one of the possibly most memorable marriage ceremonies in the history of cinema. And actually this week, I think it finally hit me what was so well done about that scene. Now growing up, as soon as I said that, I think at least half of you are thinking through the words already. You have this beautiful chapel, this ornate priest, the royal bride, I'm sorry, the royal groom and his princess. And then the priest opens his mouth and says, a marriage is what brings us together today. And as a kid, I'm like, oh, he used a funny voice, ha 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 ha, which was funny. But it hit me as I was actually working through this psalm that that voice served almost as a metaphor for the rest of that ceremony. Because, see, in the movie, in this ceremony, the princess is not marrying the right prince. She's marrying someone that has dragged her forcibly to the altar, is holding a wedding ceremony, but as it turns out, it doesn't actually end up being a marriage. Um, Actually, the kid in this movie, I think, hits on the ridiculousness of that, kind of the best earlier in the movie when the princess dreams that she gets married to the evil prince. Uh, this is, I think Fred Savage, if I remember right, Wonder years kid, but he, he looks at his grandpa, Columbo, and says, hold it, grandpa. <laughs> you read that wrong. She doesn't marry Humperdinck, she marries Wesley. I'm just sure of it. After all that Wesley did for her, it just wouldn't be fair. So you have this idea throughout this movie of there's a wedding, but then there's a marriage. And the difference between the two is having the right groom. Uh, what I want to suggest to you at the very beginning of today is that the key to reading this psalm is reading it about the right groom. Um, and because in this psalm, that groom is the Messiah, Jesus, we can honestly read this and say marriage is what brings us together today in the truest possible fashion. Now, um I'm somewhat of a critical person, so if someone just tells me, okay, this is about Jesus and doesn't explain themselves, it maybe helps me to see how we get to that point. Because if you told me this is a marriage song and I'm not going to talk about your marriage at all, that might be the first thing that's running through my head. Um, if you would then... Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. I'm going to explain how exactly we can read this psalm about the Messiah and his bride, the church, his people. So in Luke 24, this is on the first day of the week, Jesus has been resurrected. The stories are floating around, but not everyone has seen him. And his disciples, for the most part, are still not only skeptical, but mourning his death. And on the road to Emmaus, he meets disciples of his. And it's this, this scene where Jesus is in disguise. He's not really in disguise, but their eyes are actually blinded to who they're speaking to, and he says, what's the matter? Why are you so sad? He said, well, haven't you heard? Are you, where are you from that you don't know what's going on? There was this teacher, Jesus, and we had hoped that he was the Christ, but then he was crucified. And Jesus turns, and he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, this is verse twenty five, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all scriptures the things concerning himself. Right after the resurrection of Christ, Jesus appears to his disciples Who are at this point just not understanding what was supposed to happen with the Messiah and says, you've been reading the Old Testament not in the way that it was intended. This is a book about me. And had you been paying attention, it would show you the Messiah on every page in all the scriptures. So Jesus is giving them a way to read the Bible. But if we take this passage even further, we see something that is equally as impressive to me. So Jesus walked with them. He shows them the scriptures. They urged him to stay. He sat, he prayed, he broke bread with them. And at this point, their eyes are opened to Christ. And a little bit further in this passage, Jesus vanishes, and they said to one another, and this is important, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? This passage isn't just giving us a model of Jesus saying, yes, the Bible is about me. It's giving us a response to that understanding. Their hearts burned within them. As they saw the scriptures correctly, it was exciting. It was amazing. It was something that they hadn't encountered before. I'm going to suggest that Psalm 45 is one of the psalms where our hearts should most burn within us because it is looking directly at the Messiah and praising him. Um, Just to further that, another reason that this is one of the easiest passages in the Bible to read about Christ is because the Bible reads it about Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. The author of Hebrews is talking to the people. He's saying, look at Christ. Was he not better than the angels? Christ was the one through whom the world was made. So the author is setting up the deity of Christ. Jesus is God, not just not just man, not even just angel, but better than both. Again, in Hebrews 1, he directly quotes this passage, verses 6 and 7. Uh, The author, starting in verse 6, actually, uh, 5. For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And then he sets up this contrast. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is key. But of the Son, he, that is God the Father, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Hebrews actually tells us God speaking to Christ is the way that we can read this psalm. And then because this psalm is about marriage, Paul, I think, really just seals the deal in Ephesians chapter 5, which I'm fairly certain that all of us have heard in reference to marriage. One thing that I think we tend to do when we're reading Ephesians chapter 5 is we look for the instructions to us. We look for, how is this about my marriage? What Paul is actually doing in Ephesians chapter 5 is saying, your marriage is not about Your marriage is about Christ and his people. Let me just read that to you to sink it in. Um, Right after he talks about the instructions to husband and wife, he goes into Genesis, returns to Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says, the mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, Paul understands marriage from the top down. If you want to know how to have a good marriage, you don't look at marriage tips. You look at Christ and the church and how that's supposed to work. And that it influences the way that you actually live your life, including in marriage, which then models that. If we want to look at the marriage of Christ and the church then, Psalm 45 is one of the best places to go for that. And part of me actually hates to get into explaining it because I think the poetry is so beautiful that that's what should be moving our hearts. But in order to better understand the poetry, let's just take a little bit of time and actually walk through this psalm and kind of open up the meaning of the passage. One of the most interesting things about Psalm 45 to me is the way that it starts out. Verse 1, my heart is stirred with an excellent word, I will speak my works to the king. The poet here is actually praising himself in the very first verse of a psalm of praise to the king. Which seems kind of ridiculous. He's talking about how good his poem is. He's not even talking about the king. Here's why that actually makes sense. The king that this poet is talking to, the marriage that is taking place right here, is not a second-rate marriage. There will be no lisping in this ceremony. Only the best poet is even capable of writing the wedding ceremony, for this king, for the Messiah. So when the poet is apparently praising himself, he's not actually saying, this is about me. But we can actually see in the first verse, his heart is overflowing with good words because of this king, and they must be the best words because the king is the best king. And then immediately after that, he goes into one of the most wonderful passages in the entire Bible on Jesus, on the Messiah. Beginning right off the bat, and if you're looking at this in your Bible too, it probably says handsome. There's a reason we stuck with beautiful, even though that's not really an English term that we would use for the groom so much. You are beautiful, most beautiful from among the sons of Adam. Immediately, the psalmist says, this is the best person that could be. He references back to Adam. This is the one person among the sons of Adam, among humanity, that is the most magnificent. He's already said, God has blessed this person, not just for a time, not just until they mess up, but forever. The blessings on this king are for all time. And then in the next three verses, he moves into kind of an explanation. Using the metaphors of a warrior as to why this man is qualified to be the best king. Verse 3, he starts speaking of a sword. Gird your sword up on your thigh, almighty one. And if you're talking about a king, maybe that's enough. Maybe this is just a very powerful warrior. And having a sword, he can do battle and actually conquer nations. But here, the psalmist clarifies, what is that sword? Well, the sword is the majesty of this king. The sword is his splendor. In other words, this king is so magnificent, so amazing, that merely his presence, you might say, slays people. Um, We see this idea in scripture. Whenever people have an encounter with God... Or even the messenger of the Lord in the Old Testament. What do they do? Fall flat on their faces. They cannot stand before this magnificence. So that's what's going on here. His weapon is his own magnificence. His own majesty. And then we see a little bit more about that. May your splendor advance right out upon a word of truth. A word of humility and righteousness. Again, for a normal king, maybe a horse is good enough. Maybe he just happens to have the best horses in the country. This king doesn't go forth on any normal horse, but it's actually explaining this is how you send forth your reign. And what is that? It's a word of truth. What that's saying isn't just you speak right words, but truth is what characterizes this king. Truth is what characterizes him. And it clarifies what that truth is in a way that I think is very helpful for us. Um, In our day and age, when we think truth, we think fact. I took a test. It was true or it was false. If it was true, that's the right answer. But this passage actually clarifies truth is not simply yes or no, correct or false. Truth is actually intimately connected to this king's humility and his righteousness. The way that he goes about his truth makes it true. So this humble king that, I mean, thinking about Jesus, not regarding himself more highly, but actually coming as a servant, kind of maps onto his life, but also the idea of righteousness. So he doesn't just call people out and say, you're wrong, I'm right. But there's a sense of righteousness that actually reflects what true living ought to be in this king. And then finally, we see something about the king's people. Finally honed your arrows. And the way the psalm works is, the next passage is just kind of a, parenthetical phrase, the people under the king. It's carrying this idea that the arrows are actually the people underneath the king. They do his bidding. Just like an arrow ought to go to its target, these people go where the king has directed them, directly into the hearts of your enemies. The people of the king go where they're directed, and that actually cuts straight to the heart of his enemies. And after explaining... Basically, the power of the king is not in his weapons. It's not in his horse, but it's in his uprightness and his own beauty. Then we move into verse 6, which Hebrews quoted. Your throne, O God, is forever and beyond. It's scepter uprightness, it's scepter your reign. So, at this point, we have God speaking to God, which is almost unheard of in the old testament right that's why i think hebrews keys in on this this king is no normal king the psalmist has just called him god he is upright he reigns on his own power so that idea of the scepter the power of the throne is not anything that has been given to him it actually is his uprightness it is his right to reign that establishes this throne not the other way around so we see David we see Solomon there's this idea that God gave you this throne God is upright for the throne with this king he establishes his throne and in the next three verses it moves on and kind of goes to maybe the benefits of the king i guess you could say as the perfect king he has been anointed Myrrh and aloes, kasha and your wardrobe from Palaces of Ivory. So it goes into these things that the king has now been given at his disposal. All of the best from all of the best palaces are designed for his use and to bring him joy. Daughters of kings attend your court. A queen arrayed in gold of Ophir stands waiting at your right hand. This is a strange wedding compared to what we are used to. We just spent over half of the psalm talking about the groom. Nine verses in, we finally got to the bride, and it's just kind of this side mention. You were the king, you were most magnificent, you were the most beautiful person in the world. By the way, there's a queen standing ready for you. And then the psalmist moves into the passage to the queen. And this is the part where I want us to listen carefully. Because as a psalm about the Messiah and his people... When the psalmist speaks to the bride, he speaks to you and he speaks to me. He is speaking to God's people here. And here's what he says. Listen, daughter, observe and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty when he is your lord. Bow to him. This is why I think it's important that we understand the king is the most beautiful king in all of the earth. Because the word used here for beautiful is almost exactly the same as the word used for beautiful when the poet is speaking to the queen. There's one difference. When it's talking about the king, the word is doubled up. So the word is used twice, like beautiful, most beautiful you are. And that comes into play down here when we see the queen the same. Okay, her beauty is actually underneath. Her beauty is a fraction of what the king's beauty is. And we see something really neat about this relationship that I think is often lost in the imagery of our wedding services today. So again, in the words, the first command to the bride is to forget her people in her father's house. Okay, well, that reflects back to Genesis. No big deal. He's just saying, well, this is what a marriage is. You leave, you cleave. As an original reader of this, it would have been, I think, a little bit bigger of a deal. Your identity is wrapped up in your people. So for us, it might be, I hate to go there, but it might be like, forget your Facebook account. Forget your cell phone for the day and look to the king. Like whatever comprises who you think you are, forget it. Get rid of that. And then, after that, the king will desire your beauty when he is your lord. What's going on in this passage is the bride is not beautiful just because she's a bride or because of anything inherent in her. She is beautiful because she has turned her face to the king, given up her identity, and replaced it with who he is. She's about to enter into his family and actually take her beauty from him. Again, not maybe a thing that we model. In weddings today. Although some of you were at a wedding several years ago, sometime before I got married, where the couple that we know actually modeled this exact thing. During this wedding, they actually asked that the audience not stand when the groom, I'm sorry, when the bride entered, because that reflected that all of the honor in this wedding was supposed to be for the bride, when in reality, she was actually being brought in to the groom. So we have the king, who is beautiful. We have the queen, who forgets herself and becomes beautiful by virtue of the king. Now in verse 13, we have the wedding ceremony. And the princess is beautiful. All-glorious, the princess, glory radiating from her gold-woven dress. Now what's neat here is there is a wardrobe mentioned in this psalm. There is a closet where this dress probably came from. That closet doesn't belong to the king. If you go back a couple of verses, you'll notice it is the king who has fancy things and fancy wardrobes in his palaces of ivory. All of the glory in this princess is from the king, but this king is not unkind. He has given his bride the best of his wardrobes, clothed her in it so that she can be brought forth to him just as beautiful as someone that ought to be marrying this king. So in the ceremony, we do see beauty of the bride. But we also again see the glories of the king shimmering. She will be conducted to the king, the virgins after her, her companions, the ones brought into your presence. They too will be con- conducted in gladness and rejoicing. They will come into the palaces of the king. I want to pause for just a minute at this ceremony. Because of what I've been saying, this is a psalm about the Messiah and his people. That's the case. Then this wedding ceremony is, in a sense, reflected every time we get together on Sunday. This is the time when we, as the bride, come, are brought, shimmering before the king, to adorn him, to bow before him, and to become beautiful as we look at the face of Jesus. And there, and I think, lies one of the keys for our ears in this passage. Our beauty is taken from jesus how often do we try to do that the other way around how often do we look at the church and we're like "Well, that that just yeah maybe if we did it this way more people would be interested maybe if we did it that way more people would be interested the psalm is telling us that there is one way to do church that will actually bring those with us into his presence in gladness and rejoicing that is if we do church so that it is all about jesus None of the programs that we add are the main thing. It's not that they're bad things, but they're not the main thing. Anything that we should add should be added to church, should be done in church, to look at the most beautiful king that anyone could have. Now here's where it gets fun. Because so far the bride has lost everything. She got a nice dress, but she's pretty much forgotten herself. And then in verse 16, this worship service is completed, and the poet speaks a promise. But He speaks a very interesting promise in this verse. Again, I'll read it to you. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You will make them princes throughout the earth. Well, even if you're just quickly reading through this psalm, we've heard that language before. We've heard it to the bride. Forget your people and your father's house. Forget all that came before you and turn to the king. So it sounds like this is saying, okay, bride, now see, it's okay. In place of that stuff that you gave up will be this. Well, it might be saying that, but here's the thing, and we don't do this very well in English because your is always your, whether it's singular, plural, masculine, or feminine. But this is a promise to the king. It was the groom that this promises to whereas It was the bride that actually lost It was the bride that lost her family. But then after they are married, the promise to the king, to you, Messiah, in place of the fathers will be your sons. You will make them princes throughout the earth. As you start thinking about, well, what's going on here? What's going on here? What's going on here is that there is actually great reward, the greatest reward possible in forgetting ourselves, in forgetting about who we are, And becoming united with Christ. But the promises aren't fulfilled on an individual level. This is for me. They're fulfilled as we become part of what Jesus is doing to save his people. As he brings us into his family, all of the things that we lost are made up for so much more. So, the takeaway there is, did you give up yourself? Did it hurt? Yes? Good. Because there is better out there for you as soon as that happens. There's a new name that you cannot take on unless you actually enter into this ceremony. And then the psalmist wraps up in verse 17. And this is fun, because we remember at the beginning he did have these magnificent words to say about himself. But when he closes, that's not what happens. When he closes... Again, this is once again the psalmist speaking first person. I will cause your name to be remembered generation upon generation, forever. Thus, people will acknowledge you forever and beyond. So going from the beginning, I'm the best poet, and I have to be the best poet because the king is the best king. The psalmist wraps up by saying, and even as the best poet, I have no more to claim than the people of this king, than the bride of the king. All I can do is sing your praises. At the end, it goes from being about him, as it might have seemed at first, to being about the king. I will cause your name to be remembered forever. So how do we take that away? How do we look at a passage and say, okay, this is not anything practical that you gave me. You didn't say, well, do this. There's no checklist here. Exactly. Exactly. There is no checklist here. There is actually one command in the whole thing, and that's just forget about who you are. It doesn't matter anyway. Look elsewhere. Look outside of yourself. Look at Christ. As we do that, I would actually like to put that into practice as we close today. Again, like I said, this is the reason that I wanted us all reading the same translation. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about the Psalms as the prayer book of the Bible. I'm actually going to read a paragraph from him because it was amazing and I could not even come close to saying it this way. But uh, here's what he's saying. In a book on the Psalms, if we want to read and to pray the prayers of the Bible, and especially the Psalms, we must not ask first what they have to do with us, but what they have to do with Jesus Christ. We must ask how we can understand the Psalms as God's word, and then we shall be able to pray them. It does not depend, therefore, on whether the Psalms express adequately that which we feel at a given moment in our heart. If we are to pray aright, perhaps it is quite necessary that we pray contrary to our own heart. Not what we want to pray is important, but what God wants us to pray. If we were dependent on ourselves entirely, we would probably pray only the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer. But God wants it otherwise. this is the key. The richness of the word of God ought to determine our prayer, not the poverty of our own hearts. And that's the reason I'd actually like to close by going back to the psalm. Because in a sense, hopefully it's opened up a little bit and we can kind of see where those metaphors are going. But in another sense, that's still the poverty of our own hearts, the poverty of my own explanation, compared to the actual words of the poet, whose heart stirs with a more excellent theme. So what I'd like us to do is take out your translation, and as we close, we're going to pray God's words to Christ. And the way that we're going to do that is I'm going to read verse 1, and I'm going to ask us as a church to corporately read 2 through 9, the verses of praise to the king. And then I'll close with verse 17. Everybody, if you will, please get out your translation, and I'll begin. My heart is stirred with an excellent word. I will speak my works to the king. My tongue is a quill, a ready scribe. is our King Church. I will cause your name to be remembered generation upon generation forever. Thus people will acknowledge you forever.